instructed to uh, write an epistle, a letter to the Galatian church um, because of how they were getting opposition from uh, the Jewish uh, Christians. So let's start with chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. We'll be um, going through a lot of the commentary by Brother Jeremy Painter in his handbook on the epistles of Paul. In answering the charge of his opponents regarding the authenticity of his apostleship, so there was, there was uh, basically these, these uh, Jewish people who were saying that Paul wasn't, uh, wasn't who he said he was, that he, he was preaching the wrong doctrine and that people needed to come more into Judaism rather than follow what God had given the Gentile church. In answering the charge of his opponents regarding the authenticity of his apostleship, Paul denied that his calling was human rather than divine in origin. An increasingly popular argument among liberal biblical scholars and theologians is that the earliest church, the apostolic church, did not worship Christ as God. They argue that it was only after a period of three or four generations, the post-apostolic church, that Jesus began to be deified or treated as God. However, the fact that Paul, who wrote this letter in approximately AD 49 to 50, put Jesus on the divine side of this equation, affirms that the first generation of Christians worshipped Jesus as God. Moreover, although this affirmation was recorded in the middle of the first century, Paul took it for granted that the one who called him was divine. He did not feel it was necessary to explain or defend this belief. He didn't he didn't say, well, this is a bit out here. I need to go through the, my logic and reasoning and why I'm doing this. No, it was something that was understood. Paul obviously assumed that his Galatian audience shared this belief as well because there was no explanation. This indicates that the belief in Christ's divine nature was a shared belief that existed much earlier than the date of this letter. You see, the twisting of the Word of God to suit a person's own ideas and purposes still continues today and is growing more and more and is growing as more and more Christians believe that it doesn't matter what you believe, just that you believe in God. It's getting more and more popular as we come to, uh, well, it's, it's really leading up to a, a one-world church. Um, where it doesn't matter what you believe, you just believe in God and He takes care of the rest. Well, He's put His Word in front of us for a reason. And it's not something small. There's, there's a lot in His Word that we need to digest and He calls us to follow. So it really does matter that we follow the Word of God in the fullness of its truth. Verse 2, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. The phrase, all the brethren which are with me, indicates that Paul was well supported and may have spoken as the representative of a larger group of people who were concerned with the state of the Galatians' faith. He wasn't doing this on his own. He wasn't some sort of a rogue preacher, but he had the backing of others in the church. 
Verse 3, grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Trinitarians try to use this passage and other similar passages to say that Jesus and the Father are two different persons. When really both the proper use, meaning, and context of the original Greek word and the meaning in the context of the and translated here back um, in the 1500s or whenever it was, is our modern word even. This becomes even more evident when we look at the next verse. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Using the same word and and the same logic, God and the Father must be different persons as well. So there, anyone who believes that the end means separate persons, should really be worshipping at least four persons instead. Where God is different from God the Father. Whereas it is pretty obvious that it makes more sense to use the correct modern understanding of according to the will of God, even our Father. And it's very similar to the fact that I am a son, I am a father, I am a husband, and I am an employee, but I'm not four different people. Verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul is referring to God and our Father in this verse as one being. Paul writes, to whom be glory, or to who be glory, and not to them be glory. So the context, the, the way to read it is being even, even our Father. And that flows through to the other similar verses. Verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Paul deviated from his standard greeting here. Where he typically concluded his greeting with thanksgiving, for example, in Romans chapter uh, chapter 1 and verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. A lot of the time he opened his uh, epistles with thanksgiving, but not so in this uh, epistle. Paul chose here to omit this benediction, this, this greeting. Instead, he proceeded immediately to the business at hand, namely the Galatians' surprising deviation, turning away from the truth. By verse 8, we can see why he didn't include this thanksgiving. In place of thanksgiving, he pronounced the opposite, a curse upon the messengers of false doctrine. Verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul rejected, Paul rejected the notion that his opponent's gospel was indeed good news, which is the meaning of the word gospel. As we shall see as the letter unfolds, now that the law has been fulfilled in Christ, the attempt to find justification by the works of the law is to find bondage. It's not to find truth. It's not to be more perfect in God's sight but it's to find bondage because God has delivered us from the law. He has brought something in that is better. Paul also denied the idea that his opponent's gospel 
is different from the gospel only in degree, only in, you know, just, just you know, a, a, a little bit here and there. He used the term heteros in the Greek, other, to indicate that the gospel was different in kind to the gospel. So this was something that was completely apart from the gospel that had been preached by Paul under the anointing and the power of God. Verse 8, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Don't just say, oh, you know, you shouldn't talk about that. There is a serious implication that goes with this verse. False doctrine, false teaching, whether it be something that has has been uh, uh, good in the past and and replaced by something better, is not the truth. It's not something that we should even touch. We should not allow it into the church. Verse 9, as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. This was so important that he needed to say it twice. You know, I can probably count on one hand the, the times that the, the, same, the same thing needed to be repeated very quickly soon after in the Bible. And it's always things that are so incredibly important that they needed to be said again because of just how very vitally important they were that the reader understood. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If I followed this, if I followed the, the Jewish law, if I did the things that I used to do in the past, then I would not be the servant of Christ. I would not be following Jesus. I would not be doing what God wanted me to do. And the, and, uh, the book of Galatians goes into later, not this lesson, about how the law was a schoolmaster. It was a preparation for this new age of the church that God was going to bring in later. The body of Paul's letters reveals that his view of angels tended to be cautious. Like his references to the angelic... Next slide, please. In 1 Corinthians 13.1 and 2 Corinthians 11.14, which, which say, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And 11, 2 Corinthians 11.14... And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Just the fact that something is angelic or seems to be angelic doesn't mean that it's all-knowing or of God or even of God. Paul here referred to the potentially lying appearance of the angelic. This reference is crucial to Paul's argument. It sets the stage for um, the narrative that follows over many verses from verse 8 here to the end of chapter 2, verse 21. Paul was attempting to teach the Galatians how they should respond to false messengers. As a model for how the Galatians are to confront false doctrine, he narrated his encounter with the Apostle Peter, which we'll get into next week, but we'll refer to today. With the climax 
of Paul's rebuke of the first apostle. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 21, Paul did not content himself with merely telling his audience how to respond to a great authority figure who preaches an unauthorized gospel. The presence of an angel would inspire fear and obedience. Angels of heaven stand in the presence of God, as Luke one nineteen says. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God. And I am sent to speak unto you and to show you these glad tidings. However, Paul showed them that once he had to confront Peter, who had himself stood in the presence of Jesus, God manifest in the flesh. Verse 11. So even if something seems to be of God, or seems to come from someone who we respect, but if it doesn't align itself with the Word of God, then that needs to be discarded. No matter how important or powerful the person would seem to be. That's how important the Word of God is. That's how important God takes His own Word and interpreting it correctly. Verse 11, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. It's not after my own ideas. It's not after what I would think. It's not after what um, a popular opinion is. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He actually was taught by Jesus himself, this revelation. For ye have heard of my conversation or my way of life in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. He had everything in the way of the Jews, in the law, in following the law. He was the pinnacle. He was the top. He was exalted. He was given letters to go and persecute in other, in other uh, countries those that were Christians. He had everything that he could ever want in the Jewish religion. But he left it all when he found the truth. Paul stated that the gospel which he preached was the direct result of a revelation or uncovering of Jesus Christ. What Paul recounted here was his Damascus experience when the light shone from heaven and he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And that came as an incredibly powerful change to his life. Because he had thought he was following God, but then he found he was going in the opposite direction. That can be found in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. That must be a different uh, reference. My apologies. Paul's encounter with Jesus came not during Christ's earthly life. The vision that Paul saw on the Damascus road was of the exalted Lord Jesus. Unfortunately, there is a tendency among agnostic theologians, and in what does agnostic mean? It's a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or the nature of God. Basically, they don't believe it's possible to know for sure that a God exists. So these agnostic theologians, I don't know why they're bothering to study the Bible, but Uh, There's a tendency among them to suggest that Paul's vision encounter 
with the resurrected Jesus was the same thing, encounter for all of the disciples. So they all met Jesus in this, in this um, unusual way, bright shining light um, falling from horses. They assumed that the Gospels merely used figurative language when describing the rest of the apostles' physical encounter with the risen Lord. The mind boggles. However, Paul refuted the notion that his encounter was a template for the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 8, at the bottom of the slide there, he stated that the Lord appeared to him last. And last of all, he was seen to me also as one born out of due time. This was not the normal experience. Paul stated, clearly stated that his encounter with the risen Lord was not the usual thing. None of the other apostles encountered the Lord in this way. He came struggling into this new world, this new doctrine, this church, like an infant ripped untimely from the womb, gasping for breath and blinking under the bright light of the persecuted Christ. Verse 15, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred or talked not with flesh and blood. In Jeremiah chapter one, chapter one verse five, and the suffering servant Isaiah, 40, sorry, like Jeremiah, and the suffering servant in Isaiah forty nine and one, Paul spoke of his prenatal calling or calling before birth. Human beings may seem to have the ability to call others to a ministry, but only God can call someone in the womb. The apostle may have used the term rendered here separated intentionally in order to refer precisely to the tradition into which he was born and raised. From Philippians 3, uh, Philippians 3 and verse 5, next slide please, we know that Paul was a Pharisee, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law, a Pharisee. A Hebrew term that expresses the idea of separation. Being a Pharisee was to be separated from the common and separated to God. In verse 16, Paul stated that the purpose of his calling was to preach to the heathen. In Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, sorry, verses 1 to 6, the suffering servant stated that he was called from the womb and that he was to be a light to the Gentiles. As Uh, It is there. Essentially, Paul was suggesting that he was chosen to be the vehicle by which the suffering servant, the Son of God, would enlighten the nations by referring to them here. Galatians 1 and 17. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Paul was at pains to remove the Galatians from the idea, probably um, put forward by his opponents, that he had heard and learned the gospel from the church in Jerusalem and that he had either misunderstood it or had decided to alter it at certain points. He argued that after the Damascus vision, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia. Paul noted that he had had to make uh, a very secretive escape from Damascus in order to flee from King Aretas as is put in First uh, Second Corinthians 11, 32 and 33. At the time, Aretas was king of the Nabataeans. Nabatea was in Edomite Arabia, 
modern-day southern Jordan. Paul's reference to Arabia was probably to the Nabataean capital, Petra. He may have gone to Petra and earned the suspicion of this king while there, perhaps by preaching the gospel. Paul was never backward to uh, preach the gospel wherever he went. That's pretty obvious. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 18. Then after three years, so he didn't go straight up, he preached the word of God according to the way that Jesus gave it to him for three years. After three years, he went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save Jesus, the Lord's brother, sorry, save James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which are around to you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cephas refers to Simon Peter. It is the Aramaic term for rock. Petros is the Greek equivalent. As part of his desire to show that his profound knowledge of Christ could not have come from a human agent, Paul wanted to stress to his readers that he did not spend enough time in Jerusalem to be instructed in the church's full and official teachings, which would have included the extensive material out of which the Gospels were formed and the intricate apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament in reference to the Christ. There's a whole heap of scripture that all forms together. And Paul, in 15 days, could not have taken all of that in. He only spent two weeks there, just enough time to become acquainted with Peter and James, the brother of the Lord. Verse 22, And was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed. And they glorified God in me and was unknown by face. Paul's reason for mentioning these members who were not personally acquainted with him was that these were the very people who were now coming to Galatia and claiming to know him firsthand as a fraud. In other words, they were spreading rumors based on secondhand information. Always danger, ain't dangerous to do in any situation. Furthermore, they had radically changed their former good opinion of him. He which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith. Verse 23, it is normal for opinions to change, but an opinion should not change without provocation. Paul's preaching of the same gospel that once inspired them to glorify God, in verse 24, had now inclined them to try to undermine him. Paul had not changed, his accusers had. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem. Paul may either have been referring here to the Jerusalem Council, described in Acts 15, or to a conference just prior to the council. It is almost impossible to determine which one it was. If it was the former, the actual Jerusalem Council, Then Peter's actions in verse 11, which you will see next week, were to be considered as going backwards from a position that had received the church's blessing. If it was a conference just prior to the council, then his actions were part of what necessitated that council to come. Um, 
into, play, in, into place in the first place. Barnabas, or Joseph, um, who was surnamed Barnabas, um, if you read Acts chapter 44 and 36, that is <coughs> obvious. Excuse me. Barnabas, who was a Jew from Cyprus, was Paul's early missionary partner. Titus, a Gentile convert, was highly trusted by Paul, who charged him with organizing the collection for the Jerusalem church in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 6 and verse 16. Uh, number two, soothing the wound between Paul and the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 to 7. And three, overseeing the church in Crete, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Some traditions hold that he was, that Titus was a relative of Luke, which might account for the curious fact that Titus was not mentioned in the book of Luke um, or Acts. Verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I, had run, I should run or had run in vain. He needed to make sure that what he was preaching was right. He couldn't rely on, on, on just his own belief um, or something that had been given to him in the past. He needed to know that he was right and he was following the word of God correctly. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He wasn't forced to follow the law. Paul had no doubts about the validity of his teaching to the Gentiles, but he sought private counsel with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, perhaps to ensure that the leaders of the Jewish church were in harmony with his teachings. The fact that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised indicates that indeed while some of the distinctive social traditions remained in place, the leaders considered Paul's teaching to be authentic. Verse 4, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage or back into the law and the fullness of the law, to whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour. We didn't allow them to continue. We didn't follow what they said, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. There's that word truth. The truth is important. The context is important. Doing exactly what God wants us to do is important. This passage seems to be uh, a moving away from, or, uh, from what he was talking about and, and going back to recollect what had prompted Paul, Barnabas and Titus to come up to Jerusalem in the first place, as in chapter 2, verse 1. In order that the integrity of the gospel might remain intact for the Gentiles, in spite of great pressure from the Jewish Christians, he refused to have the Greek Titus circumcised. Although according to Acts chapter 16 and verse 3, he had Timothy circumcised under similar pressure, but he probably did that because Timothy was half Jewish and Titus was not. He was a full Greek. Verse 6, But of these who seem to be somewhat, whosoever, or sorry, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me, God accepts no man's person, for they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Well, church leaders should be respected for their following the will of God and for the position that God has put them in. 
People themselves are not worthy to be worshipped or lifted up. We will lift up the positions and God, God using people in positions, but we should not ever lift up people as though they are God themselves. But contrary rise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was under Peter, for that he wrought effectually in for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, or Simon Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. They agreed. They were all together. They were in one mind, one accord, about what the Gentiles needed to do to be saved. The order of these names may be important here. It is an order represented in the way that the books of the Bible are put in order. Among the general epistles, James's letter comes first, followed by the letters of Peter, Cephas, and John. Interestingly, Peter was not mentioned first in this list, as he usually is when his name appears in a New Testament list. James, the Lord's brother, was first. It may be that Peter's flight to Caesarea after his imprisonment required James to assume the lead role in the church. Verse 10, Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. It is biblical that the church and members in the church help those in the church that have needs. This doesn't mean handing out money left, right and centre but it does mean assisting with needs at significant times in church members' lives. It could be as simple as cooking a meal for somebody who's lost their job or picking somebody up for church if their car has broken down, among many other things. If I could get someone to the piano, please. I want to get to the crux or the most important part of what we're going to be talking about this morning. There is a growing trend of people who want to interpret the Bible in their own way for their own purposes. It is possible, even easy, for a person to twist the Scriptures to mean whatever they want it to mean. A twisted interpretation of the Bible and God's will led to the Crusades between 1095 and 1291, where there was horrendous loss of life on both sides as European Christians tried to free the Holy Land from the grip of the Muslims who had settled there and return it to the Jews. A twisted interpretation of the Bible and God's will led to the Spanish Inquisition that started in 1478 and the indiscriminate killing or um, deportation of basically anybody who believed in anything other than Catholicism. The rise of the television preacher in the early 1950s and onwards led to a watered-down gospel for their viewers as the preacher needed to stay popular, to stay on the TV and attract more viewers and in many cases line their own pockets. So the more convicting parts of God's Word were largely ignored, misinterpreted or untouched. The fact that there are more than 45,000 different denominations Christian denominations around the world today and probably growing means that many, many people have interpreted the Bible in their own way 
according to their own ideas and often for their own purposes. I think that God has deliberately made it easy for anyone to believe what they want to believe. Because God has always wanted people to search out the full truth of His Word. God has never been interested in robots. That's why it was possible for Adam and Eve to make the wrong choice and sin in the first place, way back in the Garden of Eden. God has always wanted people to choose to follow Him in the right way according to His Word, just like Adam and Eve's first son Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain, who had no intention of following God's Word or His plan, and God didn't let him get away with it. This first chapter and a half of Galatians warns us that we must follow God's Word exactly as He has laid it out. If even an angel tells us something that doesn't line up with the full truth of God's Word, then they're not really a messenger for God, from God. That's what angel means. And they need to be rejected. If a high-ranking figure in the church, even our church, preaches something other than the full truth of God's Word, then it needs to be rejected. Just like Peter needed to be rebuked by Paul when he separated himself from Gentile believers and caused the Jewish believers and even Barnabas, Paul's right-hand man, to follow his lead. That's straight after in the book of Galatians. This is serious stuff. And the warning is that we need to take God's word seriously. And yet, following the popular trend of this age, we find it easy to ourselves start to twist the scriptures to suit ourselves. We can choose to ignore parts of God's word that don't match up with our lives or the way that we want to live. We can try to twist the scriptures to mean something completely out of context to drive forward our own beliefs and our own agendas, whether they are heaven or hell issues or not. We can attempt to justify our own carnal desires and decisions by trying to spiritualize what we are doing, even if it is not a heaven or hell issue, by twisting a scripture out of context to support our own carnal thinking. I must be in the will of God in what I want to do. This scripture backs me up. After all, if the Bible backs up our actions or what we want to do, we must be in the will of God, right? We can ignore the original context of the scriptural passage we are using and the other scriptural passages that might speak against what we think or want to do just as long as we have that one verse that we believe that God spoke into our minds and that we have twisted to mean what we want it to mean. We are aware that not just God, God speaks into our minds, right? Our own voice, our own will will speak to us. Uh, the devil will speak to us. And the spirit and the attitudes of this world will speak to us. And all of them will sometimes powerfully affect our emotions and our beliefs if we let them, we listen to them. That is why we are on very thin ice when we take any scripture outside of its original context. There are many scripture passages quoted for many different purposes with well-intentioned meanings, but they have been quoted out of context. For example, in James chapter 4 and verse 7, it is often quoted, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yeah, powerful scripture, 
We have the power of Jesus in us and the devil has to flee when we come against him. Well, yes, but there's an important ingredient and context that often gets left out. The full scripture says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have to submit to God before we can resist the devil and he will flee. It's not automatic. There's a prerequisite condition that needs to be met first. Without the first condition being met, the second condition and promise isn't going to happen. That's just a simple example of why context is so very important. Context isn't just found verse by verse on its own. Every verse isn't an island with its own context that has no relation to the verses around it. Context is found book by book, chapter by chapter. But be careful because context flows across chapter boundaries as well. And not verse by verse. It's too easy to come to the end of a chapter, close the thought in your mind and start the next chapter as a completely no thought with no relation to what has gone before it. But that very rarely happens. Chapter divisions and also verse divisions were not put in by the original writers of the books. But they were put in in a much, much, or they were put in much, much later in or around the early 13th century as a way to more easily find specific scripture passages within the larger books. So context flows across both verse and chapter divisions. And because the Bible is the full and complete word of God to us and it all merges together, context crosses book boundaries as well. The entire word of God interprets the entire word of God. Everything in the word of God complements and reinforces all of the other scriptures in the word of God. It's one narrative by God himself. So taking any one scripture on its own to mean something that you really want it to mean is dangerous, almost certainly wrong and insulting to God, especially when you think that the inspiration for that particular interpretation comes from God. Satan is no novice when it comes to the scriptures. He has been twisting them ever since God's first instruction to Adam and Eve. Did God really say The three temptations of Jesus in the desert show Satan as a master twister of God's word. And Jesus showed us that the only way to refute and rebuke twisted scriptures is by meeting them with scriptures quoted in the correct truth and context. Just because a scripture seems to back up your thoughts and your desires doesn't mean that it does. It could be a twisted thought planted by the enemy of our souls or our own carnal desires, or wanting to fit in with the systems and popular opinions of this world. Before using a scripture or a short passage to justify your thinking, first you need to find the original context of that scripture. Does your interpretation match up with what the original first century church understood to mean when they read it? Does your interpretation match up with the scriptures around the passage that you want to use to justify yourself? Even Paul, who had received the gospel by the mouth of Jesus himself, needed to confirm that he was on the right track by consulting with the church leaders. We can often think that we're right, but we're not willing for our desires to be challenged by those in leadership in the church. We want to do what we want to do. And we have our own excuses. Don't use the spiritual cop-out of trying to justify your actions by saying that God told me 
or showed me this? Did he really? Or was it some other voice that was stronger in your life than God? 